Hey, this is Travis Dow from podcastnick.com. We talk about alchemy and Czech history, the history of Germany, and even uncouth parts of history in the secret cabinet. Stop by podcastnick.com if you like history podcast. That's podcastnik.com. But now do enjoy Ryan's History of Ancient Greece. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 62, Agricultural Festivals. Festivals helped to fill the great vacancies of life for the ancient Greeks. As the philosopher Democritus put it, quote, a life without celebrations is like a road that has no ends, end quote. And festivals helped to regulate the flow of life. Without them, the passage of life was in a constant danger of becoming monotonous and undifferentiated, especially for a time that didn't have the type of entertainment options that we have today. Because of this, festivals generally play only a minor part in the life of a community today, notwithstanding the importance of certain holidays. This state of affairs is characteristic of societies that regard their holidays as peripheral and whose members do not closely identify with one another through the collective memory of shared experience. The Greeks, though, would not have understood how a society could function without a sense of shared experience that is reinforced at regular intervals throughout the year, and our lack of celebrations would have struck them as very strange. Moreover, because they did not divide the year into periods of seven days, with an appointed period of rest at the end of each week, our weekends, festivals constitute the primary pretext for the recreation of the ancient Greeks. They also offered them an opportunity to express their common identity as citizens, tribesmen, and deemsmen, and to reinforce their sense of an inherited, even sometimes invented, tradition. In Athens, for example, more than 60 days a year were devoted to state-sponsored festivals. Greek festivals took many forms. At the lower end of the scale were the deem festivals, and at the upper end were the civic festivals, in which the entire citizen body participated. In some cases, even resident aliens and slaves were allowed to attend. The best attended of all, though, were the prestigious Panhellenic festivals, which attracted celebrants from all over the Greek world. We discussed those at Olympia, Delphi, Nemea, and Corinth in detail in episode 21. Each festival was a unique expression of worship, tailor-made to the deity in whose honor it was held. A number of features, though, were common to many, including a procession to a deity's shrine with ritual stops along the way, the singing of hymns, the decorating of a wooden object that embodied the deity's power, athletic, musical, and dramatic contests, and finally, the most essential feature of all was a blood sacrifice performed on an altar in front of the deity's shrine, followed by the distribution of meat amongst the priests and worshippers. Our knowledge of Greek festivals is not sufficiently detailed enough to allow us to know the precise significance that they held for the people who celebrated them. In general, the impulses that propelled the Greeks to congregate and perform elaborate and complicated rituals incorporated fear and anxiety on the one hand, and relief and gratitude on the other, as the majority of Greeks lived precariously between famine and surplus. Hardly surprisingly, then, many of their festivals were designed to garner favor from the gods in order to secure a regular supply of foodstuffs. And as one might expect, many festivals of Demeter and Kor were tied to the annual cycle of grain cultivation. But also celebrated were Dionysus, Poseidon, Apollo, and Artemis, who all played roles in the overall harvest. Barley and wheat were the staple crops, sown during the fall in most Mediterranean lands. Great anxiety surrounded the fateful question of when to plow and sow, as the farmer must plant late enough to coincide with the autumn rains, yet early enough to allow the shoots to become established before the onset of the winter cold. Therefore, the most important festivals and rituals connected with grain cultivation are clustered around sowing time, 
And since the majority of ancient Greeks lived directly or indirectly off of the land, they were probably more concerned with the rituals that were linked with their natural year, more than any others. This is just speculation, but they therefore may well have felt more in need of, and closer to, the traditional deities worshipped in the festivals that marked the sowing and harvest. As usual, we are best informed about the festivals of the Attic calendar year. It is sometimes called simply the Greek calendar because of Athens' cultural importance, but it is only one of many ancient Greek calendars. It was used to regulate the internal affairs of the Athenians and would have had little relevance to the outside world. For example, the Theban calendar had different names for their months and their year began in midwinter, but in Athens, the new year began six months later, just around midsummer. Also, while Greek months were supposed to begin with the first sighting of the new moon, that was determined locally, and thus had a degree of variability. In Athens in particular, it was up to a magistrate to determine when a month ended and a new one began. In many years, the months in the two communities would have more or less coincided, but there is no sign that they tried to keep the days of the months exactly aligned, and they would have seen no reason to do so. Furthermore, like the other Greeks, since the Athenian calendar was based on the phases of the moon, it was in a state of almost constant turmoil. A lunar calendar is extremely convenient in a subliterate society for arranging the dates of monthly festivals, payments of debt, public assemblies, and so forth. But as a basis of marking the passage of the seasons, though, it is virtually useless, because the lunar year is 11 days shorter than a solar year. Since the success of the harvest was thought to depend on ritual activity performed at precise moments of the year, the Greeks had to insert extra days, or even an extra month, from time to time in order to keep their calendar in line with the annual circuit of the sun. In fact, over a 19-year cycle, they had to insert seven extra months. Although relatively abundant, the evidence for the Attic calendar is still patchy and often contested. As it was well known in Athens and of little use outside Attica, no contemporary source had set out to describe the system as a whole. Furthermore, even during the well-sourced 5th and 4th centuries BC, the calendar underwent changes, not all of which are perfectly understood. As such, any account given of it must be a tentative reconstruction, as no complete list survives anywhere, with all 12 months set out in order. Regardless, the Athenian months were named after both gods and festivals. Although the Athenians started their new year in midsummer, we are going to start our description of their festivals in the autumn and work our way back around. Early in the month of Pionepsion, which is late October or early November, on the seventh day took place the Pionepsia in honor of Apollo. Its name literally means bean stewing, from Pionus, or bean, and Epsion, or to boil, and was in reference to the sacred offerings given during this time. A hodgepodge of pulse was prepared into a stew and offered to Apollo, in his capacity as sun god and ripener of fruits, and to the Horai, as the first fruits of the autumn harvest. Another offering on this occasion was the Erasioni, which was a branch from an olive or laurel tree, bound with purple or white wool, and around which were hung various fruits of the season, pastries, and small jars of honey, olive oil, and wine. It was intended as a thanks offering for all of their blessings received, and at the same time as a prayer for similar blessings and protection against evil in the future. It was carried in procession by a boy whose parents were both still alive to the temple of Apollo, where it was suspended on the gate. The doors of all Athenian houses were later similarly adorned. The branch was allowed to hang for a year when it was replaced by a new one at the following Panepsia, since by that time it was supposed to have lost its virtue. During the procession, a chant was sung, the text of which has been preserved by Plutarch in his Life of Theseus. Quote, Eresene carries figs and rich cakes, honey and oil in a jar to anoint the limbs, and pure wine, that she may be drunken and go to sleep. End quote. The semi-personification of Eresene embodies the spirit of vegetation in general, whose vivifying and fructifying influence is thus brought to bear upon the grain in particular. Another agricultural festival in the month of Pionepsion was the Oscophoria, in honor of Dionysus, the god of the vine. The festival may have had both agricultural and initiatory functions. Amidst much singing of special songs, 
two young men dressed in women's clothes would bear branches laden with grape clusters called oskoi from Dionysus to the sanctuary of Athena Skeros, and a foot race followed in which selected Phoebes, or youths, competed. Plutarch in his Life of Theseus connects the festival and its rituals to the Athenian hero king Theseus, and specifically to his return from Crete. According to that myth, the Cretan princess Ariadne, whom Theseus had abandoned on the island of Naxos while voyaging home, was rescued by an admiring Dionysus, and so the Oscophoria may have honored Ariadne as well. Furthermore, during the month of Panepsion, there took place the Proerosia, or pre-plowing sacrifices, in the various Attic deems, including Eleusis. In conjunction with the Proerosia, there were at least three sacred plowings, one at Skiron, one in the Rarian plain of Eleusis, and one in Athens. The Thesmophoria, with its ritual preparation of the seed, followed soon after these were completed. Sanctuaries of Demeter and Kor tended to be scattered in neighborhoods rather than centralized civic centers, probably because they were used for local celebrations of the Thesmophoria their most widespread festival, and one of the most popular of all Greek rites. The term thesmos means that which is laid down, meaning laws, rites, or revered customs. As the presiding deities, the two goddesses were called thesmophoroi, or bringers of the divine law, because the introduction of grain cultivation was considered the origin of civilized life. Some scholars believe that the things laid down are to be understood in a much more literal sense, referring to the dead piglets deposited during the central rite of the festival. Still, the epithet unquestionably conveys the respect in which the goddesses were held, as do their other cultic titles of Megalothei, or great goddesses, and Hagnithei, or pure goddesses. Regardless, the Thesmophoria was celebrated in order to promote fertility, both human and agricultural. The fact that the Thesmophoria was celebrated across the Greek world suggests that its origin dates back to before the Greek settlement of Ionia during the Dark Ages. It was restricted to adult women, though, and the rites practiced during the festival were kept secret, as men were forbidden to see or hear about what transpired. It is not certain whether all free women celebrated the Thesmophoria, or whether this was restricted only to aristocratic women. Whatever the cause was, slaves, prostitutes, non-citizens, and unmarried women appear not to have celebrated the festival. Literary evidence for the exclusion of males is plentiful. Herodotus tells how the Athenian general Miltiades attempted to enter a restricted building, the Megaron, in the sanctuary of Demeter and Kor on Paros, perhaps to meddle with the untouchable things there, and as a result of divine anger, was stricken with a fatal cause of gangrene, as we discussed in episode 36. Xenophon in his Hellenica says that the men of Thebes stayed away from the Cadmia while the women were performing the rites there, going so far as to hold a meeting of the Boule in the Agora, rather than its usual place on the Acropolis. However, dedications from men have often been found at these sites, so we know that they were only excluded from the festival, but not the sanctuary entirely. Demeter's sanctuaries were apparently used for a number of different observances throughout the year, only some of which involved ritual gender segregation. The most extensive sources on the Thesmophoria festival are a comment in a scholiast on Lucian's Dialogues of the Courtesans, which explain the festival, and Aristophanes' comedic play Thesmophoria Zui, or The Women at the Thesmophoria, which parodies the festival. He draws a vivid picture of male suspicion and female revelry during the ritual, which he sets on the Paninx, in the same meeting place used by the Athenian assembly. Excavation in this area uncovered a few terracottas and lamps consistent with the sanctuary of Demeter and Kor, but not enough material to confirm the existence of a thesmophorion, though. He also mixes thesmophoric elements with elements from other Greek religious practices, especially the worship of Dionysus. So as with all of Aristophanes' plays, be cautious with this satire, but take this one with an even bigger grain of salt. Naturally, the best evidence for the Thesmophoria concerns its practice in Athens, but there is also information from elsewhere in the Greek world. The Attic Thesmophoria took place over three days, from the 11th to the 13th of the month of Penepsion, which corresponds to late October or early November, and was the time of the Greek year when the fields were plowed and seeds were sown, as we have mentioned. 
The Thesmophoria may have taken place in this month in other cities, though in some places, such as Delos and Thebes, the festival seems to have taken place in the midsummer, and thus was associated with the harvest instead. In other places, the festival lasted longer. For example, in Syracuse, the Thesmophoria was a 10-day-long event. Married aristocratic Greek women gathered in their local sanctuary of Demeter, often called the Thesmophorion. Although celebration of the festival was generally not centralized, one sanctuary might be more heavily frequented than the rest. Most had a few modest cult buildings or a simple shrine, called a megaron, rather than an elaborate temple. But they are relatively easy to identify as sanctuaries of Demeter and Kor by the objects left behind, such as ceramic tableware, water jars, numerous lamps for the nocturnal parts of the rites, the remains of ritual meals, and terracottas of the goddesses or their adherents, often carrying a piglet. The sacred objects used and acts performed during the Thesmophoria were kept secret. We hear of ritual dances, processions, and special foods, particularly bread. For example, the Delian celebration, held in the late summer month of Metagaitnion, involved an event called the Megalartia, or large loaves, and bread also seems to have played an important role in the celebrations at Corinth. Only one source, the scholiast on Lucian, describes the ritual in detail, and his version refers to Attic custom. He writes that during the Attic Thesmophoria, pigs were sacrificed, and their remains were cast into the snake-infested chasms of Demeter and Kor, which were chambers either called Megara or Aduta. This was done in honor of Eubolius, a herdsman whose swine were swallowed in the abyss when Hades abducted Kor. Eubolius reappears as a deity in Eleusis, as a euphemistic name of Hades. An inscription from Delos shows that part of the cost of the Thesmophoria there went towards paying for a ritual butcher to perform the sacrifices for the festival, but literary evidence elsewhere suggests that in other places, the sacrifices may have been made by the women themselves. After an unspecified amount of time later, the decomposed remains of these piglets were retrieved from the pits by women called bailers, who were required to spend three days in a state of ritual purity before descending into the Megara. The piglets' remains were then placed on altars to Demeter and Kor, and mixed with the seeds of grain. The scholiast says that pine branches and wheat bread baked in the shape of snakes and phalluses were also added. The remains were then scattered on the fields where the seeds were sown, in the belief that this thanks offering would ensure a good harvest and the procreation of their people. This bizarre rite, which was perhaps seen as a kind of reenactment of Persephone's descent to Hades, was evidently intended to facilitate the germination of the grain, but why it took this precise form is a complete mystery. According to some scholars, this practice was the clearest example in Greek religion of agrarian magic. It is not certain how long the remains of the pigs were left in the Megara either. The fact that they had decomposed by the time that they were retrieved shows that they had been left in the pits for some time though. Possibly they were thrown in during one festival and retrieved the next year. However, if they were thrown in during the Thesmophoria and retrieved in time for the sowing of the seeds that year, then they may have only been left in for a few weeks before being taken out again. Regardless, the ritual deposition of piglets was probably widespread, as piglets were cast in a megara at Potnia and Boeotia, and excavations of Demeter and Kor sanctuaries at Canidos and Priene, and those of the earth goddesses of the Cabarian, have uncovered such pits. At Eleusis, several deep shafts, rich in organic matter, were found around the porch of the so-called Telesterion. This has been taken as evidence that the Thesmophoria was held there, as well in other deems of Attica. Some have argued that the story of Persephone's abduction was the mythical foundation for the ritual, as the piglet is representative of the female genitalia, and the piglets falling into the earth to be resurrected with a grain symbolizes the descent and ascent of Persephone. And so the Thesmophoria and the Eleusinian mysteries shared the same myth, but were interpreted in different ways. Other scholars have suggested that the Homeric hymn to Demeter, usually thought to recount the origin of the Eleusinian mysteries, is actually, in fact, an etiological account of the Thesmophoria. Anyways, the first day of the Thesmophoria at Athens was called Anatus, which means ascent, 
perhaps with reference to the women's retrieval of their remains from the chasms, or because it relates to the ascent of Persephone from the underworld, which was celebrated at the festival. Or maybe because on this day, the women celebrated the festival ascended to the shrine called the Thesmophorion. Regardless, the aristocratic married women gathered in the sanctuary of Demeter, bringing supplies of food and setting up tents as temporary accommodations, as they would spend the rest of the festival staying in these, rather than at home. Preparations for the rest of the festival were also made on this day, and two women were elected to oversee the celebrations. The second day of the Attic Thesmophoria was called the Nestia, or Fasting because this was a day of fasting, imitating Demeter's mourning for the loss of her daughter. On this day also, no public business or sacrifices were conducted in the city by the men, and other women not attending. The women at the festival sat on the ground on seats, made of plants which were believed to be an aphrodisiac. As part of the proceedings, the women engaged in a ritual obscenity, sex talk, and mockery called Iscorologia, this seems to have been a mainstay of the goddess's segregated worship. Its mythical explanation is that when Demeter was grieving for Persephone, scurrilous jokes and gestures caused her to smile. And so the sex talk was the verbal equivalent of the piglets, pine branches, and phallic shapes handled by the participants. The women's heightened awareness of their own sexuality and reproductive ability was powerful. Therefore, it could be deployed to aid the growth of crops yet dangerous to male prerogatives. Therefore, its unfettered expression was limited to the festival context. The third and final day of the Attic Thesmophoria was called Caligenia, or Beautiful Birth. On this day, women called upon the goddess Caligenia, praying for their own fertility, making clear the connection between agricultural bounty and women's fertility. They may have eaten pomegranate seeds, and this was probably the day of the feast, which was presided over by the Arcusai, or leaders, elected from each deem. While the women were celebrating the Thesmophoria, the men weren't sitting at home idle either. During the same three-day span, the Athenians held the Apatoria, on which occasion the various fratries, or clans, met to discuss their internal affairs. On the first day of the festival, called Dorpea, banquets were held towards the evening at the meeting place of the fratries, or in the private houses of its members. On the second day, called Anarissus, from Anaruin, meaning to draw back the victim's head, a sacrifice of oxen was offered at the public cost to Zeus Fratrius and Athena. On the third day, called Coriotus, Children born since the last festival were presented by their fathers or guardians to the assembled fratry members. After an oath had been taken as to their illegitimacy, and the sacrifice of a goat or a sheep, called Maon, their names were inscribed in the fratry's register. The name Coriotis is derived either from Koros, meaning a young man, thus making it the day of the young, or less probably from Cairo to shear, because on this occasion, young people cut their hair and offered it to the gods. The children who had already entered puberty also made offerings of wine to Heracles. On this day also, it was the custom for boys still going to school to recite pieces of poetry in contests and to receive prizes for their victories. Festivals in honor of the dead formed a major feature of the calendar as well. The most spectacular was the annual ceremony held in honor of the war dead. Known as the Tapfi, or burials, it took place at the end of the campaigning season, in early winter. Thucydides describes it as follows, quote, Three days before the ceremony, the bones of the fallen are brought and put in a tent, which has been erected, and people make whatever offerings they wish to their own dead. Then, there is a funeral procession in which coffins of cypress wood are carried on wagons. There is one coffin for each tribe, which contains the bones of the members of that tribe. One empty bier is decorated and carried in the procession. This is for the missing, whose bodies could not be recovered. Everyone who wishes, both citizens and foreigners, can join the procession, and the women who are related to the dead make their laments at the tomb. When the bones have been placed in the earth, a man chosen for his intellectual gifts and general reputation makes an appropriate speech in praise of the dead, and after the speech, everyone departs. End quote. And now, let us take a short break for a word from our sponsors. 
The History of Ancient Greece is powered by the CLNS Media Network, and today's episode is brought to you by Great Courses Plus. There's so much to be gained by exploring the small details of extraordinary stories, and with the Great Courses Plus, I am always discovering something new. There's unlimited access to thousands of fascinating video lectures on a variety of topics to choose from. History, science, literature, even photography and chess, all presented by some of the greatest professors and experts in the world. I love that I can watch lectures from my TV, computer, mobile device, or stream the audio with the Great Courses Plus app. This week, I recommend watching their series on great mythologies of the world. It features a fascinating lecture on gods and humanity in Greek thought, which explores the relationships between gods and humans. In particular, it gives a really interesting look into how the kidnapping of Persephone led to inspiration for the Eleusinian mysteries. I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus as much as I do. Sign up today, and as one of my listeners, you'll receive unlimited access to enjoy all of their courses for free for one month. But you need to sign up through my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Greece. Get started today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Greece. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Greece. And now, let us turn our attention back to the ancient Greeks. Athenian farmers anxiously awaited during the month of Memacterion, which was late November or early December, because during the month of Poseidon, which was late December or early January, the grain sprouted and began to grow. By the time of the Haloa festival at the winter solstice, which celebrated the harvest, it became evident whether the farmers had chosen their sowing dates wisely. This festival was celebrated principally at Eleusis, and was not only in honor of Kor and Demeter, as the protector of the grain of the earth, but also Dionysus, as the god of the grape and of the vine, and Poseidon, as the god of seashore vegetation. Haloa seems to mean threshing floor, and thus relates to the process of loosening the edible part of the cereal grain after harvest. Epigraphic evidence from the 4th century BC shows that huge amounts of firewood were used, probably for the bonfires that were typical of solstice ritual. At this point in the year, the grain was dormant due to the cold, as only the returning heat of the sun during the springtime could bring it to fruition. Ancient accounts of the Haloa are of a later tradition, Confusing, and thus ultimately lacking, but it appears that like the Thesmophoria, all aristocratic women were expected to attend this event, and men were also excluded. Interestingly enough, though, men still had a legal and moral expectation to pay for their wives' expenses in these festivals. Ritualistically, the Haloa was also similar to the Thesmophoria temporarily flouting the rules of behavior for respectable females. Women who gathered a lucis consumed lots of wine, engaged in sexual banter, and ate pastries shaped like male and female genitalia. So like the Thesmophoria, there was lots of drunkenness and sexual symbols in abundance. Similarly, three festivals were celebrated over the winter months in honor of Dionysus. First was the Royal Dionysia, which also took place in the month of Poseidon and was held in the various deems throughout the Attic countryside, as we discussed in episode 49. In the month of Gemelion, which was late January or early February, the Linnea took place, which we discussed in episode 54, and in the month of Anthesterion, which was late February or early March, the Anthesteria was held which marked the ceremonious opening of the jars containing the newly fermented wine from the previous autumn's harvest. It also had aspects of a festival celebrating the dead. We discussed the Anthesteria in episode 48. That same month, the lesser mysteries took place just as the grain stalks entered their prime phase of growth. There will be more, though, on the lesser mystery shortly. In the month of Elephabolion, which was late March or early April, the city Dionysia took place in Athens, a festival celebrating the god Dionysus and the wine harvest, in which the central events were the procession of a giant phallus and theatrical performances. We also discussed the city Dionysia in episode 49. The next two months were Munichion, which was late April or early May, and Thargelion, which was late May or early June. 
Perhaps surprisingly, the main festival held at the onset of the harvest, known in Attica and some Ionian cities as the Thargelia, and in other Greek lands as the Thalassia, had early ties to Apollo and Artemis, rather than Demeter. Homer describes the Thalusia as the first fruit offerings to Artemis, and Apollo was the patron of the Thargelia. But by the Hellenistic period, Theocritus describes the Thalassia on cause as a Demeter festival. On the other hand, we know that Demeter was an important figure in the harvest folklore of Greek peasants, who sang songs to her as they reaped. Regardless, the Thargelia was held on the birthdays of Apollo and Artemis, that being the 6th and the 7th of the month of Thargelion, or about the 24th and 25th of May respectively. Essentially an agricultural festival, the Thargelia included a purifying and atoning ceremony. While the people offered the first fruits of the earth to Apollo in a pot of boiled vegetables, known as Thargella, as a token of their thankfulness, at the same time it was necessary to propitiate him, lest he might ruin the harvest by excessive heat, possibly accompanied by famine or pestilence. On the 6th, or the first day of the festival, a sheep was sacrificed in the Acropolis to Demeter Chloe, or of the green shoot, invoking her power of fertility and perhaps a swine to the fates. But the most important was the ritualistic sacrifice of two humans as scapegoats, called pharmakoi, in order to purify Athens. Two men were chosen amongst the ugliest and poorest cripples or criminals. On the day of the sacrifice, they were feasted at public expense, and then led around with strings of figs on their necks, and whipped on the genitals with branches of figs. When they reached the place of sacrifice on the shore, they were stoned to death, their bodies burnt, and their ashes thrown into the sea, or over the land, to act as a fertilizing influence. And so they symbolically carried away all the ills and impurities that might result in harm to the city or its ripening crops. The ceremony on the following day, the 7th, was of a more cheerful character, though. All kinds of first fruits were carried in procession and offered at the suburban shrine of Apollo Pythios, and just like at the Panepsia, branches from an olive tree bound with wool were carried by children and were affixed by them to the doors of the houses. These branches, originally intended as a charm to avert failure of the crops, were afterwards regarded as forming a part of the supplicatory service. Choruses of men and young boys took part in dithyrambic contests, the prize for which was a tripod that the victors dedicated the Pythion. Furthermore, on this day, adopted persons were solemnly received into the genos and fratria of their adoptive parents. While all of this was taking place, the Athenians also sent sacred ambassadors, called Theoroi, to Delos with sacrificial victims and choruses for the musical competitions there. The festival of the Scyra was held in the midsummer month of Scyrophorion, which was late May or early June. Like the Thesmophoria, it was celebrated at a number of sites in Attica. Its most prominent feature was the procession that led out of Athens to a place called Scyron near Eleusis, in which the priestess of Athena and the priests of Poseidon and Helios took part, under a ceremonial canopy called the Scyron, which was held up by the Etiobutidae. At Scyron, there was a sanctuary dedicated to Demeter and Kor, and one to Athena. The month of Scyrophorion marked the dissolution of the Athenian calendar year, and so, as a festival of dissolution, the Scyra was a festival proverbial for license, in which men played dice games, but a time also of daytime fasting and of inversion of the social order. It's a poorly understood festival, celebrated by married women who temporarily abstained from sex. As the bonds of marriage were suspended, women banded together and left the quarters where they were ordinarily confined, to eat garlic together, according to ancestral custom, and to sacrifice and feast together at the expense of the men. The Scyra is the setting for Aristophanes' comedic play, the Ecclesia Zuzai, in which the women seize the opportunity afforded by the festival to hatch their plot to overthrow male domination. Similarly, during the month of Hecatombion, which was late July or early August, there was also the Cronia, a festival where social restraints were temporarily forgotten. Slaves were released from their duties and were allowed to participate in the festivals alongside their masters. And so slaves and masters both rich and poor, all feasted together to give thanks for the harvest. 
They played games such as dice, or kaiboy, knucklebones, or astragaloi, and a board game known as pesoi. The freedom from work and social egalitarianism enjoyed on the day represented the conditions of the mythical Golden Age, when Kronos still ruled the world. In the Golden Age, the Earth had spontaneously supported human life, and since labor was unneeded, slavery had not existed. It was a period of thorough harmony, in which hierarchical, exploitative, and predatory relationships were non-existent. Other than the Cronia, there is only limited evidence of religious devotion to Kronos. The Roman playwright Accius describes the Cronia in order to explain its perceived influence on the Saturnalia, a festival to Saturn, the Roman equivalent of Kronos. Also during the month of Hecatombion is the Panathenaic Festival, marking the beginning of the Athenian calendar year and celebrating the birthday of Athena. There will be much more on this in a future episode. In the month of Metagitneon, which was late August or early September, the Athenians celebrated the Heracleiae, a festival dedicated to the divine hero Heracles, at the Kynosargis Gymnasium outside of the walls of Athens. We discussed this in episode 47. In the month of Bodromion, which was late September or early October, on the seventh day, the Athenians celebrated the Bodromia in the honor of Apollo Bodromios, or the helper in distress. The festival had a military connotation, as they gave thanks to the gods for their assistance to the Athenians during their wars. Sacrifices were also made to Artemis Agrotera, or the Huntress. An armed procession would take 600 goats to their temple, where they would all be sacrificed by the Polemarchus in honor of their victory at the Battle of Marathon. This rite derived from a vow that was made before the battle which in turn derived from the custom of making a slaughter sacrifice, or sphagion, to Artemis Agrotera before any battle in general. Finally, the Eleusinian Mysteries were also held in the month of Bodromion, which was about a month before the plowing and sowing began once again, thus renewing the agricultural cycle. The gods and their festivals, whether state or local, were public and shared by all Greeks or at least by all of those in a particular polis, clan, or village. But many Greeks felt a need for a more personal and individual involvement in religion, and for comfort and hope. They found this in what were called the mysteries. These were ceremonies, by which the participants felt themselves to be renewed and purified, and in which they were offered some sort of immortality through knowledge. Moreover, in some cases, this promise seems to have depended on leading a good life, so that here, if nowhere else in Greek religion, morality was a necessary part of it. There were many different mysteries in the ancient Mediterranean world, and we discussed the Dionysian mysteries back in episode 55. But the Eleusinia Mysteria, or the Eleusinian Mysteries, were arguably the most famous of the secretive religious rites in ancient Greece. Findings at Eleusis suggest that their basis was an old agrarian cult, and there is some evidence that they may have derived from the religious practices of the Mycenaean period. The name of Eleusis itself is pre-Greek and may be related to the name of the goddess Eletheia, though this is by no means the consensus view by scholars. Also, the mystery cult must have began as a local rite, open only to the people living nearby, but it gradually accommodated ever larger numbers, as it became popular in the Greek-speaking world at some point during the late 7th century BC, and for almost a thousand years, people traveled to the small town of Eleusis in Attica in order to experience something profound, something that soothed their fears and gave them a hope for life after death a hope that enhanced the lives immeasurably of those who were initiated. According to Plato, quote, The ultimate design of the mysteries was to lead us back to the principles from which we descended, a perfect enjoyment of spiritual good, end quote. The initiates were known as mystes, which suggests that these people kept their mouths shut about the things that they saw within the sanctuary, since many words starting with my or mu have to do with silence. And so we don't know fully what happened, only what took place up until they entered the temple. Still, though, a surprising amount is known from archaeological investigation. The later assertions of hostile Christian fathers, which you naturally should read with caution, and other scattered bits of information. 
Furthermore, the Eleusinian mysteries had an important public component that was visible to everyone, and contemporary sources addressing this aspect of the rites, including inscriptions and vase paintings, are numerous. In spite of the plentiful data, or perhaps because of it, many scholarly controversies surround the Eleusinian mysteries. For example, when was the Eleusinian cult incorporated into Athenian religion? Was it from the beginning, or not until the 6th century BC, when the tyrant Pisistratus of Athens helped the Eleusinian mysteries achieve Panhellenic status? What was the relationship between the cult and the Homeric hymn to Demeter, and to what extent does the hymn reflect an Eleusinian perspective? Finally, what is the significance of the Mycenaean remains found in the sanctuary? And do they point to continuity of the cult from the Bronze Age? Well, the early Mycenaean Megaron, which was located underneath the later temple of Demeter, called the Telesterion, was distinguished from nearby houses by its stepped porch and the remains of frescoes within. Also, Mycenaean figurines were found in the vicinity, yet its function is not clearly established. It may have served as an elite residence, a cult building, or both. A curved geometric period wall outside the Megaron could be either the remains of an archaic temple of Demeter, or a retaining wall added to the still-standing Bronze Age structure. In any case, the earliest unequivocal evidence of the cult at Eleusis is the massive 8th century BC terrace and a wall enclosing the whole area, with a sacrificial pyre full of broken figurines, pottery, and ashes at the entrance. The site of Eleusis lies at the edge of the Thriacian plain, which was known as the breadbasket of Attica, and so it was bound to be of interest to the emerging Athenian polis. Legend tells of a war between the two towns when Erechtheus was king at Athens, and Eumolpus, the first celebrant of the mysteries, was king at Eleusis. The resulting settlement left financial control of the cult entirely in Athenian hands, while ritual responsibilities were shared between two aristocratic families, the Eumolpidae of Eleusis and the Kerakes of Athens. The chief priest of the mysteries, the Hierophant, or the revealer of sacred things, was always a Eumolpidae, while the Kerix, or Herald, and Didakos, or Torchbearer, two other important officials, were both Kerakis. Second only to the Hierophant was the priestess of Demeter and Kor, who could have come from a number of different families. Hers was probably the oldest office associated with the cult, as their duties extended to several of the local, deem-level festivals of Demeter at Eleusis. Inscriptions reveal an ongoing struggle for ritual authority between the Hierophant and the priestess of Demeter in the 4th century BC, when a Hierophant was convicted of impiety for usurping the priestess's right to preside at the Haloa. Many of the sacred personnel connected with the mysteries seem to have held their offices for life, a fact that sets the Eleusinian priesthoods apart from most others among the Greeks. There were only two requirements for membership into the mysteries, those being the ability to speak Greek, because the rituals were spoken in Greek, and the consecrating of an oath that you were free from blood guilt, meaning that you had not committed a murder. Women and slaves were even allowed initiation. Furthermore, initiation into the mysteries required time, effort, and a cost that, while substantial, was not out of the reach even for the poor. Those who wished to participate, and had the means to do so, were expected to undergo a long period of preparation, beginning with the Lesser Mysteries in the month of Anthesterion, which was late February or early March, as we mentioned. It was also seven months before the Apoptei, or the Greater Mysteries, which took place in late September or early October. It's not clear whether initiates were admitted to the Greater Mysteries in the same year. Some scholars believe that they were, while others argue that it was for the one in the following year. Regardless, the Apoptei was held every year, but every four years they celebrated it with special splendor in what was known as the Pentet Terrace. Little is known of the Lesser Mysteries, but they took place in the suburb of Agri at Athens, in the sanctuary of Meteria, under the direction of Athens' Archon Basileus, and they involved purification of candidates by bathing in the Lysus River, or through the use of the Dios Codion, a sacred fleece obtained by sacrificing a ram to Zeus Malikios. 
Together with the sacred way that connected Athens to Eleusis and the Athenian temple of Demeter, called the Eleusinion, which was located between the Agora and the northwest corner of the Acropolis, the lesser mysteries helped to cement the relationship between Athens and Eleusis and shape the Athenian identity of the festival as a whole. Candidates for initiation into the mysteries, known as mystai, had to seek a sponsor from the Eumolpidae or Caracus to guide their spiritual preparation, a process known as maesis. On the 13th and 14th of the month of Bodromion, which was late September or early October, the Hera, or sacred objects, were brought in procession from Eleusis to the Athenian Eleusinion, and their safe arrival was announced to the priestess of Athena on the Acropolis. Priestesses from Eleusis carried these objects in boxes on their heads, and so they couldn't have been very large or heavy, but we know almost nothing else about them except that they played a central role in the climatic rite. The next day, the 15th of the month, was the first day of the mysteries proper, called the Agrimos, or the Gathering. All prospective initiates assembled in the Agora for a formal proclamation of the start of the rites, called Paresis, by the Hierophant and the Dodocus. At this time, they probably paid their fees, which has been calculated to have been the equivalent of several days' wages. The 16th of Bodromion was a day of purification. Directed by the heralds, the prospective initiates brought piglets to Phaleron or Piraeus, where they bathed in the sea and washed the animals, because pigs were dirty animals and needed to be purified. Each initiate then sacrificed the piglet on his or her own behalf. The underworld deities loved the pig. Not only were they fertile, as they had many births at one time, but they were very bloody. While smoke rose to the gods in the heavens, the blood sunk into the ground to the gods in the underworld. Anyways, participants were now officially initiates, or mystai, deemed worthy of witnessing the greater mysteries at Eleusis. The next day, the 17th, was allotted for major state sacrifices, and on the 18th took place the Epidaria, a festival within a festival, if you will, that celebrated the introduction at Athens of the cult of Asclepius and his daughter Hygieia, which first occurred in 420 BC. It was named after his main sanctuary at Epidaros. The purified mystai stayed at home and did not participate, though, so as to not pollute themselves once again, while the rest of the Athenians held a great sacrifice and took part in an all-night feast called the Panakis. The 19th brought the great Pompeii, or procession, and the escort of the Hera back to the sanctuary of Demeter and Cor at Eleusis, which is roughly about 15 miles or 22 kilometers from the Karamikos, along what was called the Hera Hodos, or Sacred Way. The Mystai followed the path through the Attic countryside, over Mount Agellius, to Eleusis. They set out in a merry mood, wearing garlands of myrtle and carrying bunches of twigs or bundles of provisions attached to the end of sticks, called bakoi. During the procession, there was much iambic behavior, similar to what Iambi did to cheer up Demeter, including lots of laughter, verbal abuse, sexual behavior, and rock throwing. Naturally, then, they believed that they were being led by Iaukas, the god who personified the ritual cry, Ayake. Because of the boisterous tone of the procession and the similarity between the names Iacus and Bacchus, the former began to be associated with Dionysus, yet he was a distinct Eleusinian deity, as we discussed in episode 55. When they arrived at the outer court of the sanctuary, they came upon temples dedicated to Artemis Propylaea, or before the gateway, and the Eleusinian patron deity Poseidon. Foundations of these temples can still be seen today. The Mystai then spent the rest of the evening celebrating the reception of Iacus and singing and dancing at the well called Kalakoron, or the Place of the Beautiful Dances. This was the supposed well where the two daughters found Demeter, when she rested as she searched for her daughter Persephone. The well received its name because special dances were performed there at this time by maidens from Eleusis. Also, a large wellhead was first built there in the 6th century BC, during the time of the Athenian tyrant Pisistratus. Perhaps this was also the day when the carnoi, or special offering trays equipped with cups of various seeds and grains, were presented to the goddess. The next day, the 20th, saw the offering of the Pelinus, a massive cake of barley and wheat that was harvested from the sacred Aurarian plain, and other sacrifices from the first fruit offerings, called a parkai, were tithed to Demeter and Kor.
The Mistai, meanwhile, fasted, and finally broke their fast with the consumption of Kikion. For the longest time, we understood that Kikion was a form of beer, with fermented barley and an aromic herb called Pennyroyal. And it may have been just that, but at least when consumed during this ritual, there seems to have been a special ingredient at it. Chemical analysis has recently been performed on sealed jars found in the Telesterion that shows that the Kikion was infected with a fungus called ergot, the primary ingredient for the drug LSD, so there no doubt was a great high in the crowd during these rituals. Regardless, these actions, and others to follow, imitated the activities of Demeter when her daughter had disappeared. Demeter's fasting and drinking of Kikion is recorded in the Homeric Hymn to Demeter, which we discussed last episode. That evening and into the following day, the 20th, took place the secretive parts of the ritual when the Mistai were admitted into the confines of the sanctuary proper. This was situated on the southwestern slope of the Eleusinian Acropolis and had two main components. First was the rocky cliff containing a cave that served as a cult place for Theos, or God, and Thea, or Goddess, the Eleusinian titles for Pluton and Persephone, respectively, in their roles as the king and queen of the dead. The area of the cave recalls the imagery of the entrance to the underworld, which was associated with the abduction of Persephone by Pluton, or Hades. A small shrine of Pluton and Persephone, called the Plutonion, was originally built in the 6th century BC, also by Pisistratus, but it was remodeled in the 4th century BC. Only the foundations remained, though. Along with them was also worshipped a deity or hero named Eubolius, whose role was similar to that of Hermes in the Homeric Hymn to Demeter. He is shown on vase paintings holding torches in the presence of Theos and Thea, ready to guide the goddess back to the upper world for a reunion with her grieving mother. The Agalastus Petros, or Mirthless Rock, where Demeter is supposed to have sat mourning the loss of her daughter, was probably also in this rocky area. Passing by the cave with its small shrine, the Mistai would have followed a path up to the principal structure, a large hippo-style initiation hall, known to scholars as the Telosterion, from the Greek word teleo, meaning to complete or to consecrate. That's a modern term for it, though, as the ancient Greeks simply called it either the neos, meaning the temple, or the anaktoron, meaning the Lord's Hall. Starting in the late 7th or early 6th centuries BC, a succession of ever-larger temples was built over the old Mycenaean Megaron, each one containing an inner room whose position was kept constant throughout. In fact, there would be 10 different building phases in its history. As we mentioned in episode 39, it was destroyed by the Persians during their second invasion of Attica, when the Athenians withdrew to Salamis for the second time. In fact, standing in the sanctuary, one could look directly into the Straits of Salamis, where the battle was fought and won. Anyways, the temple would then be rebuilt even larger during the Periclean building program. The design of this temple differs dramatically from those of other gods, because unlike most Greek temples, it was designed to hold a large number of people, estimated up to 7,000, and includes seating around the walls so that it was enclosed completely. According to Plutarch, the building had lots of columns, which signifies that it was very low, and since the building had no windows and was lit by torches, the rituals would have been very smoky, giving an eerie feeling. Information about the actual telete, or mystery rites, becomes foggy at this point, as the sources give us only a glimpse of what took place inside the telesterion. The ancient texts containing scholia on the mysteries are of an encomiastic nature and reveal that the initiates underwent a transcendental experience. According to Clement of Alexandria, a 2nd century AD church father, before the mystai could enter the telosterion, they would recite, quote, I have fasted, I have drunk the kikion, I have taken from the kiste, or box, and after working it, I have taken it back to the kalathos, or lit it basket, end quote. According to Aristotle, the rites inside the telusteria comprise three elements, dromena, or things done, dichnomena, or things shown, and legomena, or things said. In regards to the first part, the things done, we know the place was plunged into the darkness, and some sort of dramatic reenactment of Demeter and Persephone took place, because people on the outside could hear the play happening. Plutarch said that the boisterous crowd was made submissive with awe and wonder. 
Certainly, the initiates were guided on an emotional path from confusion and grief to confidence and joy, and this progression seems to have corresponded to the events in a ritual drama depicting Persephone's return from the underworld and a reunion with her mother Demeter. In regards to the second part, the things shown, we also know that at a critical moment, the hero font appeared from the inner room in a blaze of torchlight, causing the whole place to light up in order to display the hera, or sacred objects, to the amazed onlookers. These sacred objects were the kiste, or box, and a kalathos, or lit basket. Only initiates knew what they contained, though. They might have been golden replicas of grain stalks, or may have been sexual in nature, like casts of body parts. A grain of wheat, unless it falls to the earth and remains, and thus dies, will bear much fruit when it spreads its seed, and Demeter causes more life to come from it thus a symbol of life, death, and resurrection. Regardless, whatever was inside of them was then removed, and they no doubt had some sort of a lesson attached to them, which is the third and final part, the things said. The combination of these three elements were known as the apparetta, or unrepeatables, and the penalty for divulging them was death, which is why we know almost nothing about what transpired there. At any rate, the initiates felt themselves joined with the processes of the universe and were promised life in the hereafter. The promise is vague, though, saying, quote, Blessed is he, whoever of men upon the earth has seen these things, but whoever is uninitiated in these rites, he has a different fate down in the murky darkness when he is dead. End quote. Regardless, whatever it was, it was enough to make Eleusis one of the greatest centers of Greek religion. The whole purpose of this celebration was for the priests to manipulate their emotions and pass on information to them of the mysterious nature of life and death, that it's necessary and not final. Maybe there was some sort of reincarnation. Anyways, those who had experienced the mysteries in a previous year were permitted to remain in the Telesterion for a further revelation. Such individuals were called epoptai, or those who have seen. The longevity of the mysteries, no doubt, was mediated by the powerful psychoactive ingredient contained in the Kikion drink. Following the climactic rites, on the 21st, bulls and pigs were sacrificed to the goddesses and the other Eleusinian deities, and an all-night feast was accompanied by dancing and much merriment. The dances took place in the Rarian field, which according to tradition was the spot where grain grew for the first time. Early the next morning, the 22nd, the initiates honored the dead by using special vessels, called plemakoe, to pour libations of water towards both the east and the west. The people looking both to the sky and the earth shouted in a magical rhyme the phrase, rain and conceive. On the 23rd, the mysteries ended and everyone returned home. On the day after the mysteries concluded, the 24th, the Athenian Boule met in the Eleusinion to review the conduct of the festival and to deal with any infractions of sacred law, a custom that was attributed to Solon. The earliest votive deposits in the Eleusinion date to the 7th century BC, and it received architectural elaboration in the 6th century BC. It contained a temple of Demeter and Kor, altars, and many inscribed decrees relating to the conduct of the mysteries, as well as the temple of Triptolemus, the Eleusinian hero who is said to have introduced the knowledge of grain cultivation to the world, flying about on his winged chariot. Particularly in the period of empire, Athens promoted the mysteries, along with the knowledge imparted by Triptolemus, as its unique gift to the world. Heralds were sent to other cities to declare a sacred truce of 55 days, which allowed time for pilgrims to travel to Athens, be initiated, and return home. The First Fruits Decree, issued around 435 BC, details the collection of an annual tithe of grain from every demon Attica and the Athenian allies, and urges that every Greek city likewise join in the offering. We don't know how many Greek cities heeded this rather high-handed request, but Athens clearly succeeded in securing for Eleusis a pan-Hellenic reputation and status, which it maintained until the end of antiquity. Even as the cult gained renown across the Greek world, however, the Eleusinian version of the Demeter core myth remained surprisingly localized. Other cities often had their own versions of the myth that failed to be displaced because they, like the traditions of Eleusis, were venerable tales tied to local landmarks, such as wells, caves, or rocky outcroppings. Even the Homeric hymn to Demeter reflects a generic, pan-Hellenized version of the Attic cult. 
Eubolius, the titles Theus and Thea, and the mirthless rock are omitted from the story, while Triptolemus is barely mentioned. On the next episode, now that we have discussed the domains of Zeus and Hades, we will turn our attention to the realm of the other brother, Poseidon, who governed the aquatic world, a defining factor for the ancient Greeks, with its terrible, unbeatable powers, but also with the unexpected dangers that come with navigation. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 63, The Lord of the Sea. (music) 